Amen. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, as we were saying that, uh, you know, just kind of interesting to think about. If you were, we're not, we're not talking about Luke today, but if you were a, a sheep herder on the backside of nowhere, in the middle of the night, all is calm, sheep are bedded down, life is as good as it's going to get as a sheep herder, and uh, then out of nowhere, the skies erupt in praise because Jesus has been born. Can you imagine that? Uh, that's, that's an incredible thing. I mean, again, we, we're in a passage even today uh, as we continue in Matthew that uh, we can get, I said this last week, and, and I probably just keep harping on it, uh, especially as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we can get so comfortable with Jesus, uh, and not necessarily in the best way. We can get so comfortable that everything just becomes old hat. We've heard this before, we've sang this before, uh, and we stop to, to contemplate and come back to that place of awe and wonder that God has chosen to take on flesh, to dwell among us, and to take away our sin. The God of the universe took on flesh to live among us. And yet when we come into the Christmas season, we, we can almost say that without thinking about it. Uh, and as much as we can drive, I mean, uh, hopefully, uh, regardless of how long you've lived here, I hope the drive around Lincoln County never gets old to you. Right? Like when the sun hits it in a new way and you go, oh, we live here. In the same way that a landscape can become dull to us because we've seen it and we've seen it, and it's just the, 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 the space between here and there. And then all of a sudden, one day you see it again, almost with those eyes for the first time, you go, oh. Now, that's my prayer for us as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, is that um, in, in some of the ways that, that maybe we've been around Jesus for a long time. We've been around church maybe a, a good chunk of our life, potentially, or maybe this is all brand new to you, but, but I hope that as we walk through Matthew, and we see Jesus, that it rekindles the hope and the joy that we have over knowing him um, in a way that maybe we've just gotten kind of cold towards or maybe kind of dull. Uh, in the same way that hopefully every year, right, when we come to the Christmas season, that there's, there should be kind of like a, there's, there's hopefully a little spark of, oh yeah, Jesus took on flesh. That's cool. Uh, but even more than that, 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 that what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 2 is that the whole point of of, of Jesus coming, ultimately the arc of this is to give to him all of the worship that is due him and to walk with him in a right way. And so this morning we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, and again, we are, we're, we're smack dab this morning in the middle of material uh, that I would say we are familiar with uh, from a variety of different sources, not just from Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're familiar with it from uh, maybe songs that are sung. We're, we're familiar with it from movies that have been made. We're familiar with it uh, about uh, from nativity sets, nativity scenes, uh, gift cards, all kinds of things. The three wise men, three kings, um, crafts that happen around Christmas that are that are geared around this time. And, and kind of ironically, or not not really ironically, because it's in Matthew two. There's no way of avoiding it. Uh, but when we've done a, the community of churches here in Libya has done a live nativity over the last two, three years, we're taking a break this year, pick it back up next year. But our church's role in the live nativity is this passage. Um, and, and I didn't know whether or not I was going to say this, but I'm just going to go ahead and say this. What I found fascinating, so live nativity is, is kind of funny because the people get to talk to you and you get to talk back. 
Um, and, and what I love about the live nativity in some regards is um, the first two years we didn't have camels. The first year we actually had horses. The second year we didn't have any animals. And the number one comment that we had from people are, where's your camels? Last year, Jim and Kayleen helped us along with uh, some folks at Eagle Valley to, to paint some like just remarkable camels. Um, but I, I say that because when we come to Matthew chapter 2, what you're going to find is, you're, wait, where are the camels? Because it doesn't say anything about the camels in Matthew chapter 2, right? Some of it's built on what we understand and what we, what we behold. And, and while it's not wrong to wonder where the camels are, there, there's a part of when we, we begin to look at this this morning, one of the sneaky dangers of coming to a text where we have a lot of stuff that is brought to us on the periphery is that, that it becomes part of what we expect to find in Scripture, uh, you think about like the little kids movie, The Star, right? And it's all like the camels are all a big part of the star. Uh, and, and, and even just the story of the nativity is all around the star. And what that can do, though, is then when we come to, to Matthew chapter 2, in our brains, we see the picture of three cartoon camels running around, you know, slobbery mess or whatever else. Or we get uh, whatever it might be. Right, it, it could be a Charlie Brown Christmas. Is something from Charlie Brown Christmas is all of a sudden that's read into the text with us. And so, what I'm asking us to do this morning is to come back to it, fresh perspective, look at it um, from how Matthew frames it, and and what is the application for us this morning beyond mere application or a mere declaration of of how we should do our nativity sets and other things like that. So we're in Matthew chapter two, verses one through twelve. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, what's interesting is we've been just quickly walking through Matthew over the last couple of weeks, is that you'll notice that there's a gap. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we immediately jump from in chapter 1, this is how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and now in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has been born. 
Right there, none of the in 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 the in between commentary that Luke provides. Uh, so Matthew is not concerned with the census that is decreed that that causes Mary and Joseph to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, he's not concerned about this. The that there's no place in Bethlehem for them to stay. He's not concerned about relaying to you that Jesus was born in a manger. He's not concerned with relaying to you the 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 uh, angelic host that appears to the shepherds that is in Luke chapter. Uh, one and uh, two and three, uh, he just goes right from this is how Jesus was promised. Hey, he's been born. Moving on, kind of interesting, right? You go like, whoa, Luke has like, what, like Luke has so much information, and Matthew, you're just kind of blowing past some things. And it's not that Matthew is unconcerned with what what happened around Jesus's birth, but he's just telling you Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been born. He's not necessarily concerned about any of the other things that are are in the background. He's he's not denying them by their absence in his gospel. He's not denying that the things in Luke's gospel are so. He's just saying that's not part of the story I'm telling you. That's not part of the biography of Jesus that I am painting. Uh, and so the richness of the Gospels, when you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, is you get a fuller tapestry of who Jesus is. But when we read one Gospel by itself, we're seeing why did this Gospel writer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, write it in this way, right? And so there's 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 a, a benefit in reading it within the book, and then there's a, a value in reading it across the four. But you notice that Matthew makes this jump. In Secondly, notices, uh, so Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he doesn't give you any information of why Jesus is born in Bethlehem, other than in verse 6, he's going to tell you it fulfills Scripture. But he's not going to tell you the circumstances that Mary, like, at this point, you have no idea, just from Matthew's gospel, that Mary and Joseph were not from Bethlehem. Right? It's not in Matthew's gospel. You don't know that they had to go out of their way to be registered for a census because the government told them to be doing so. All you know is that, okay, we're in Bethlehem. This is where this is playing out. In the days of Herod the king. Again, first mention in Matthew's gospel of this king, which is running right up against what we looked at in week one of Matthew. Here is Jesus, the right son of David, who is going to establish the throne of David forever. But wait, there's a king already on the throne in Jerusalem, and his name is Herod. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, that Herod was not actually uh, really even an Israelite. Uh, he was, his mother was Jewish. His father was uh, way down the line, a descendant of Esau. Herod has his place because he's friends with people in the Roman government. He's not, he's not naturally born into being the king, which is interesting because it's within this context, right? In Bethlehem of Judea, Jesus is born during the days of King Herod. And then, behold, there's that magic word again, right? Flashing red lights. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the new king that was just born? King of the Jews. Can you imagine... Okay, we, we're, let's say uh, we're, we're three years into a presidential not, um, deal here. But imagine if we had a king that, that, that reigned and his son is going to reign after him. Can you imagine if somebody just showed up in our, in our national capital to a guy who hasn't had a recently born son and says, hey, where's the, the new kid that was born that's going to take your job? Where's he at? And these are guys from, 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 from outside of Israel. So this is from the east. They're probably speculation going back early church 
history is that they're from Persia, probably modern-day Iran. Uh, and so they've come somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 miles because they've seen a star come up, and they've somehow connected the dots. This star that came up represents a new king that was born to the Jews. And they travel to Jerusalem, not to Bethlehem, which is interesting. They come to Jerusalem because that's the capital city. That's where the king lives. So, so, so follow me this. The, they see a star rise. Somehow, and we'll talk about two speculations of the somehow, they put together this star means there's a new king in Israel, or a new king of the Jews. So where does the king live? He goes to the, he lives in Jerusalem. So they saw the star rise, interpreted what it meant, went to Jerusalem to the place where they thought they ought to go. And then start asking around town, hey, tell us the news about the new king. And then you understand rightly why it says in verse 3 that Herod the king, when he heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem was troubled too. They're all going, wait a minute, what are you talking about, new king? We have an illegitimate king. What are you talking about, a new king? And really quick before I move on, the two speculations of where they might have been able to put the dots together, if they were working from Scripture, you remember that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were taken captive and carried off to Babylon. And then later on, Babylon is taken over by the Medo-Persians. These guys are coming from the east, probably from Persia. So maybe, somehow, through the Jews that are living there, or through the record of things that are kept there, they put together that Daniel had a prophetic word in, in, in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that lays out a general time frame of what will happen in Israel's history, leading up to the anointed one who will come and reign on the throne of Israel. Potentially. I'm, and and I'm, I'm hedging this saying, speculation. All right, this is how people have understood. This is how these guys put it together. The second one would come out of Numbers chapter 24 uh, in Balaam's prophecy all the way back in, in before the people ever came into the land of Israel when Balaam was hired by another kingdom to curse the people of Israel and God turned his cursing into blessing. One of the things that, that Balaam prophesied is, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So maybe, it's like, I see a star down the road, it's going to represent a ruler. Speculation, potentially. What we do know from the text, wise men from the east see a star and they say, King of the Jews has been born. We got to get over to Jerusalem. The term wise men that's used, and, and I know I'm getting into the weeds just a little bit for this, it's only used, that, that phrase is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Acts chapter 13, where there's a guy named Simon, the magician, who places his faith in Jesus, and he tries to pay Peter and the apostles for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right, And so in Acts chapter 13, that, that term wise men or wise man is, is, is uh, translated as sorcerer or magician. Here in uh, Matthew chapter 2, it's translated as wise men. So, so if this steps on your toes about songs that we have sung, likely not kings. Right, So we can kind of tweak the words to so we three wise men or we three sorcerers, we three, whatever you want to say. You work on the lyrics, bring it back to me and we'll, we'll rework it. But that's probably the, the thrust of what they are. Uh, so they're probably guys who are well familiar with as, astronomy or astrology. 
bottom line is that they are people who naturally, based off of where they live and what they do, they are not people who are looking for faith in Israel's God. They are not a people who are naturally going, when is the one that Jesus, when God promises, going to come and be born in Israel? What we do know is these guys, stargazing, maybe as they often do, see a weird star and they go, what in the world does this mean? It means there's been a new king born in Jerusalem. Let's go 900 miles before there are cars, trains, or automobiles, and let's get there to worship him. At great personal expense and, and, and at their own cost, at their own time, through whatever trials it might take them to get to the root of what they have seen. So they come into Jerusalem after however long it took them to travel. If it's 900 miles, if, they're make, if, they, if they make five miles a day, which is pretty conservative, right? They're probably making more than that. They're, they're like three months out. Not forever away. But, but they're a long way off. Coming, looking for the king who has been born to the Jews. And what's fascinating as we move forward into this is that Herod is troubled, but he knows exactly where to look for the answer to the thing that they're looking for. Right? It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Israel with him. And then notice verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So these weird guys show up from the east. We don't know how many number uh, there are. And again, can I, can I step on toes again? Probably more than three. It's just that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they said there's three kings, not kings, wise guys. So they come in, and when they say, where is this new king that has been born? We've, we've come, we saw the star rise. Can I step on one more toe? Sorry, I'm in the middle of stepping on, on toes. How many of you, when you think about these three wise men traveling from the east, have them in your brain traveling and following the star the whole way? From when they saw it to when they get there. That's okay if you say yeah. Because that's in my brain, that's like it's always they're following the star. But as we walk into this, what you see is they saw the star rise, and then the star doesn't, uh, if the star led them the whole way, it would have taken them directly to Bethlehem. They wouldn't have shown up in Jerusalem going, where is the king? And it's kind of fascinating because our, our, our buzzword, the one that I love to read out loud, behold, right, is all of a sudden the star pops up in front of them again after they leave Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, they get key information that they had been missing, namely that this child that was born king of the Jews is actually also the Christ, the appointed one or the anointed one, the Messiah of the Jews, not just a physical king born to reign and rule over the Jews, but actually the one whom the Jews themselves have been anxiously waiting for. They couldn't have known that from 900 miles away. And Herod is troubled because he's ruling because of his political connections. And we're going to see uh, in a couple of weeks his, 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 his uh, intended solution to deal with a political threat. But he knows to call the religious people who know God's word and say, hey, these guys are coming in saying there's been a new king born to the Jews. So what can you tell me about the Christ? What can you tell me about the king who was promised to come and reestablish David's throne? That's, that's the baggage that's loaded up in the word Christ. The one who is going to reestablish David's throne on which I am illegitimately sitting on. Where is he supposed to be born? 
And the chief priests and the scribes didn't answer him. I don't know, the word, the, the, God's word didn't say anything about this. They tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They knew exactly where to look. They knew the right answer. What further fascinates me about this, uh, well, before I step there, in John chapter 7 and verse 42, we get just another, another angle of, of, of this when Jesus is older. There's people that are divided among who Jesus is, starting in verse 40. Only verse 42, I think, is on the screen. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. This is when Jesus is a grown man doing uh, his ministry. But some said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Or is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Like, so it's not just that the chief priests and scribes knew that the, 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 the Christ would come from Bethlehem. But later on, it causes confusion because as we'll see next week, Mary and Joseph are going to flee with Jesus and return not to Bethlehem, but to Nazareth, which is a totally different region, which is why it's going to cause people trouble and say, well, wait. The Christ can't come from there. He has to be born in Bethlehem. So there's an understanding by all of the people where this promised Savior, this promised King would come from. What's fascinating, though, you go into verse 7. It says, Then Herod comes and he brings the wise men secretly, and he begins to question them, going, Okay, when did the star come up? When did you see it? Trying to establish a time frame. Okay, when was this King born. Which tells you, for one, that they probably, well, we're going to step on one more toe of, the, of what we bring into the story with us in a minute, that they don't show up at the manger, they come to a house, but it's sometime later after Jesus has been born, which verse 1 already told us, but we're not sure how much longer after. But he begins to ask them when the star had appeared with the appearance that he could come and worship also. So he sends them on their way. What fascinates me is, do you know the distance between Bethlehem and Jerusalem? Five miles. Five miles for King Herod, for his chief priests and his scribes, they could have traveled five miles with the wise men, finding the one who was promised to them who they have longingly been waiting for. But what fascinates me about this is that none of them go with these foreigners from the Far East. Guys who dropped everything and went at least 900 miles to follow the meaning of a star that they didn't fully understand. When they finally get there, the people on whom all of their hopes for the reestablishment of the kingdom and the way that they think it will happen, when they are told this is what it means, they can't be bothered to go five miles to go figure out whether or not it's so. That's fascinating and heartbreaking. God's people who should be waiting for his promises, can't be bothered to go five miles? You go, well, it's five miles by foot. That's They walked everywhere. And it leads me to a question. 
since I've been stepping on toes anyway. It leads me to the, the main question this morning. Is our knowledge of the Word producing worship? Is our knowledge of who Jesus is revealed in His Word, is it producing real worship? One of the concerns, like, are they really convicting things that, that, that just hammered me this week on this passage? Is the sense that we as the people of God, people who have been called out of darkness into light, to know and to walk with Jesus, we might would be able to give all sorts of people the right biblical answers for the things that they are facing. And yet we couldn't be troubled to walk with them as they go and experience and worship for themselves. Are we just, are we, have we turned into, this is the way I'm going to ask this, have we turned into glorified direction givers and not co-explorers? If all of what is revealed in God's word we understand to be true and in dramatically impacting our lives and our faith in Christ, when we have an opportunity to go share with somebody the journey towards Jesus, do we just point them in the right direction and say, good luck, you'll figure it out? Or do we with joy go with them? Because we know the joy it is to find him. The people that should have worshipped in this passage, they don't. And the people that are least likely to worship are the ones that drop everything and at great personal expense leave everything in order to worship. What they don't know. And this is drawn out, so they listened to the king. They listened to the king Herod and they went on their way. And this is what I love in verse 9. So, so they've been pointed to Bethlehem. Not by the star, but by the chief priests and scribes and by King Herod saying, go to Bethlehem. And then, behold, right? This star that they had seen when it rose before, went before them until it came to rest over the place where Jesus was. And then notice their response. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. How much excitement is that? Let's break that down just just for a second because it's a mouthful. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew could have used any other combination of words because when they saw the star, they were really excited. When they saw the star, they said, that makes sense. We're on the right track. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like, like the, the number of ways that Matthew is using words to amplify what they were feeling. It wasn't just that they rejoiced, or it wasn't just that they had joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And it brings us back to that question. When was the last time you, you, you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy over Jesus? When was the last time that you just went, holy cow, he has drawn me into his presence and he allows me to be here? He allows me to be a son or daughter by faith? He brings me in? When was the last time that produced great joy that just caused you exceedingly to rejoice? Or when was the last time we talked about it in just 
calculated terms of that's what Scripture says. Jesus died for me. That's cool. I'm new life in Him. I'm not dead in my sin anymore. I, if Jesus and, and understanding who He is doesn't in some way spark something inside of us, can I suggest maybe we've missed Jesus? Like Jesus will later on tell the, the chief priests and the scribes, He says, you know the power of God, but you deny its power. We can say the same thing. You know Jesus, but you deny the fullness of who He is because it doesn't cause anything in you. Right? Like, that's like the nature of Paul's pleading with the Philippians. If there's any, if there's any joy in you, if there's any salvation in Christ, if there's any of this in you, then let this be the same mind among you. Right? Like, conjuring up, like, if you have any participation with this guy, if he has done anything in your heart, what is he doing? This is incredibly, like, the, the God of the universe took on flesh to die for you and for me. To fill us with his spirit, to give us new life that never ends. And if our response to that is, that sounds right. It doesn't sound right. It's totally backwards. A perfect person doesn't die for a sinful scumbag like you and me. It shouldn't do it. And they went in the house. They didn't just go, oh, cool, we found the place. It makes sense. Let's go home now. Star pointed to that house. They went into the house, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Can you imagine that moment? I cannot imagine... 900 miles hoofing it across desert to get to something. I can't imagine dropping everything and spending months trekking after something that I saw because of a star in the sky. Can you imagine the joy over, we didn't leave everything for nothing? Like, they didn't go the whole way and then go, oh, there was a speck on the telescope. That's weird. The great joy of seeing him, and then when they see him, they fall down and worship. And can you only imagine what Mary must have been thinking when three or more, probably more, Weird-looking guys from a different country show up, bowing down and worshiping your child and laying gifts at his feet. I think that's why Luke repeats the phrase over and over again, and Mary pondered these things in her heart. Going, like, the angel had told her things. We know this from Luke. But when it starts to play out, going, oh, okay, where'd you guys come from? Oh, how come? Oh, saw a star. Huh. And then they depart, being warned in a dream not to go back by Herod. Culminated their journey with worship. And those who were far off, spiritually and geographically, find Jesus. While those who were near should have been near spiritually and who were near geographically missed Jesus altogether. One of the dangers of of where you and I live 
And I know that we can argue about how it's drastically changing and rapidly changing and worldview is shifting. But you and I, in our lifetime, have had more access to Jesus than anybody on this planet in the entirety of human history. And because of that, there are some, very potentially some here this morning, that will miss Jesus because he's been so close. That our access to Jesus has been so easy in terms of knowledge that we would have missed real worship, real dropping everything to follow him. Because knowledge is easy and following is difficult. And so the very simple question I will leave you this morning is, does your knowledge of Jesus lead to worship? Does who you know, like what you know about Jesus, does it lead to worship in your life? And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the the four-song or five-song set we sing on a Sunday morning worship. I'm talking about, does, does your knowledge of Jesus lead you to a lifestyle of following him in faith? With joy, with exceedingly great joy. Not, not cumbersome obligation. Like, well, I guess if this is who Jesus is, then I have to follow him. And is it leading you to a lifestyle of following Jesus regardless of the obstacles? For these guys who are far off, it would have been easier to be like, that's a special star. It has special significance. Hey, there's a new king born in, 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 among the Jews. Cool. Let's come back out and look at stars again tomorrow night. Does our following Jesus cut across comfort and does it, does it lead us to follow him regardless of where he calls us to go, regardless of where he asks us to be? Are we joy-filled because of Jesus? I'm not saying hinge everything in your life on your emotions about how you feel about Jesus because your obstacles today might be really difficult and you may, just may not feel a whole lot of joy about anything. But does your knowledge of Jesus, even there, does it lead you to a lifestyle of following him and clinging to him even when you're not happy? When life's not easy? When it's not cheery? When it's not super because you know you have nowhere else to go? And then, are we sharing Jesus in such a way? Are we, are we direction givers? Are we co-explorers? Are we just telling people on a map, oh, you're close, keep going that way, you'll find it eventually. Or are we, let me take you to him and show you the one who has given me great joy.